Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books Network discussion about the new book, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, by Naomi Klein. The majority of the human race does not see global warming as a serious threat. Celebrate! (laughs) Climate legislation is dead. We... Hello, I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books Network discussion about the new book, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, by Naomi Klein. The majority of the human race does not see global warming as a serious threat. Celebrate! (laughs) Climate legislation is dead. We in the global north, with less than 20% of the population, are responsible for over 70% of global emissions. That's an excerpt from the trailer for a film produced in conjunction with Naomi Klein's best-selling book about the crisis posed by climate change with its fires, floods, droughts, and monster storms. Klein argues that capitalism lies at the heart of the climate crisis because it's an economic system driven by the imperatives of limitless growth and consumption. Imperatives that, she says, now imperil life on Earth. Her book calls for an economic transformation away from profit-driven global capitalism, with its dependence on extracting and burning fossil fuels, to new economies powered by renewable energy and that feature increased government investments in health, education, and public transit. Klein writes that neoliberal orthodoxy, with its emphasis on austerity and cuts to public spending, stands in the way of the steps that are needed to keep global temperatures from rising to catastrophic levels. In January 2016, Naomi Klein delivered a lecture about her new book to a packed audience at Mount Allison University in the small Canadian town of Sackville, New Brunswick. She also sat down for an interview with New Books Network contributor... Bruce Wark. Thank you for joining me today, Naomi. Happy to be here. Your book argues uh, that the capitalist economic and political system is based on the imperative of unfettered growth and expansion, and that that imperative is in conflict with what we must do to avoid catastrophic global warming. First of all, why do you say that? Well, I say that based on on the best available science uh, uh, around emission reductions, and uh, you know specifically um, the the experts I rely on. Um, you know, it's it's the overwhelming scientific consensus. But the people who've really studied most deeply uh, how deeply we have to cut our emissions in wealthy countries like Canada, the United States, um, you know, European countries are at the Tyndall Center on Climate Change Research in Manchester, England. Um, and what they say is that if we're going to stay within our carbon budget, um, which is 
is compatible with keeping temperatures below two degrees Celsius warming, um, which is what governments have pledged to do in international summits. And indeed, they have said that they would like to keep it lower than that. They would like to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Then we would have to cut our emissions in countries like Canada by 10% a year. Um, Now, there isn't an economist in the world who will tell you that it is possible to get that level of emission reduction within an economic system built on pursuing growth. Um, you can have a moderate emission reduction of around 2% a year with moderate levels of growth, um, but not radical uh, emission reductions. And we have procrastinated responding to the climate crisis for so long because our elite elites have been in the thrall of really market fundamentalist ideology, which couldn't um, fathom basic regulation of corporations, basic, you know, increases in taxing, uh, you know, polluters. Um, So we've wasted so much time because of that ideological capture uh, that now it really does require um, radical emission reductions that puts us in a collision course with the growth system. Naomi Klein, author of This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. During her public lecture in January 2016, Naomi Klein made it clear that she sees the climate crisis as an opportunity to replace global capitalism with a more humane economic system. There's a lot that needs changing. Um, And, you know, when I started uh, talking about this, some of my um, friends in the environmental movement took me aside and said, you know, Naomi, climate change was big enough. Did you have to make it about capitalism? Um, (laughs) Um... But here's the thing. You know, if the only problem with capitalism was the small matter of rising sea levels, I think we really would not have a chance of taking it on. But this economic system is failing us on so many levels, and people know it. How else do you explain the fact that an avowed socialist is making a credible run for the U.S. presidency right now? Or that a pope that sounds a whole lot like him is greeted as a rock star around the world? I mean, I never thought these two guys would be getting rock star treatment in 2016. (laughs) Um, So a whole lot of people are clearly ready for radical change to the governing economic system. Um, And, you know, the fact that this system that is failing people on all these other levels because it isn't providing work that people can support their families on, because inequality is widening, because militarism is rising and racism is rising. Um, There are so many arguments against this economic system, and layered on top of that is that it is destabilizing life on Earth. Far from a distraction, connecting climate change with a critique of capitalism and corporate power is, I believe, a... a a, a tremendous opportunity to unite movements across sectors. And I think where you see this most clearly um, is in the clash between climate action and policies of economic austerity, because there's a huge movement around the world taking on the logic of austerity. You have, uh, you know, political parties like Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain um, you know, that, that came to power just critiquing the logic of austerity. Um, and you know, nothing shows the contradiction between our governing economic system um, and, 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 the, and the kind of climate action we need than the fact that we're told all the time that 
our governments are broke, even though we live in this time of unprecedented private wealth. Naomi Klein, your book makes it clear that the political classes in Western democracies, or anywhere for that matter, are not prepared really to go against the imperative of, of unfettered growth. To what extent then, uh, I guess I'm coming back to that question, is it possible, given the political class and their hold on economic and political power, to what extent is it possible to move them in the direction that would, where we would avert catastrophic climate change? I think it is possible, but not without extraordinary mobilization. And I think that, you know, the mistake that people made when Obama was elected was just thinking, okay, well, now we can relax. We got rid of Bush. And, you know, I think in Canada, we have somewhat of a parallel situation eight years later where, um, you know, we, we, got, we got rid of Harper and, you know, it took a lot of effort to do that, you know, precisely because, you know, the Tories had a huge amount of money behind them, uh, a lot of media power. I mean, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's worth pausing to recognize that it is extraordinary when you think about the way, um, you know, that the, the newspapers lined up behind Harper, the, you know, uh, unprecedented, you know, front page endorsements, um, uh, that he still lost. Um, and that people did want change. But there's this dangerous thing that happens where, you know, and it's understandable that after all that effort, um, people think, okay, fine, now I can just go back to my life. When in fact, this is the moment when it is most important to put pressure uh, on the new government. Um, uh, and making it clear that that vote is not unconditional, that, that they won't get it next time if they don't deliver on their promises, um, that people really did mean it when they said they wanted change, they didn't just want cosmetic changes. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the change doesn't need to happen all at once. We are in a very, um, unique moment uh, now in Canada where um, the price of oil has collapsed and the old paradigm um isn't working anyway, right? There has to be something else. Um, we had a government that banked everything on the extractive sectors. Um, and now the investors are fleeing. They don't want to invest in the Alberta tar sands at oil at $30 a barrel, let alone $14 a barrel, right? So there has to be something else. And I think the danger is, you know, Trudeau just follows this, um, you know, very conventional stimulus model, which is, you know, investing in roads and bridges, which is really investing in the old economy, rather than taking um, the fact that we do need st uh, stimulus for the economy. People recognize that there's an electoral mandate to do it, but we also need climate action. So there should be a visionary um, uh, plan for that stimulus, which is about being the catalyst to the next economy so that we have big investment in efficiency, renewable, public transit, rails. And the benefit is that you create six to eight times more jobs when you invest in those sectors than when you invest in, uh, you know, in, in the extractive sectors. And once once these um, sectors grow, then they're going to create their own constituencies that will defend them, right? Um, and so that's why I say you don't have to do everything at once, but you do have to invest very, very decisively uh, to support uh, to support the green economy, if you will, the clean economy. Make sure there are good jobs, jobs that people are really going to defend, um, and that. And then there will be sectors to stand up to that pressure from the oil and gas industry, right? The problem we've been having over over the past couple of decades is that you're having a debate between actual jobs that the pipeline companies are offering and the, you know, the drilling companies are offering and notional jobs that you could create 
um, in green, you know, in, in green sectors. And you're never going to win a battle between notional jobs and actual jobs. But now we have a moment where we could create the actual jobs at a moment when that industry is in crisis. And that could change the game in Canada. But obviously, you know, we know that the new government is under tremendous pressure, uh, from, uh, you know, entrenched interests. And, um, that's why it's so important that the people who mobilize to get, put this government in power stay mobilized and continue to pressure them. We need to remember that the era of dangerous warming, this phrase that's used um, by our politicians that we need to prevent dangerous warming, um, is already upon us. We are already experiencing dangerous climate change. It is already costing many thousands of lives and livelihoods, as people from the Philippines know, um, because they have been dealing with these super typhoons. And this is true in Bangladesh, in Nigeria, in New Orleans, in the Marshall Islands. It is already displacing millions of people. Thousands died in heat waves this past summer in India and Pakistan. Um, morgues in Karachi, where that picture was taken, ran out of space. And people just gave way to the heat. It was just that it was absolutely unbearable. Um, so defining dangerous warming, as our governments did in 2009, as if that's someplace far off in the future when we more than double the amount of warming we've already experienced, is to discount the lives of all of these people. Kumi Naidu, the outgoing executive director of Greenpeace International, uh, calls it subliminal racism. You suggest that uh, previous political movements, including notably the uh, movement to abolish slavery, uh, could serve in some ways as an inspiration for change today, for the kinds of changes you're advocating that we we need. Um, how so? How could they provide uh, a guideline or an inspiration? I mean, the abolitionist movement. Well, I use the um, example of the abolition uh, abolitionist movement because uh, I think there really aren't that many precedents for uh, the abolition of a still profitable practice, right? Um, I mean, you can point to a great many um, uh, political victories by social movements for feminism, for civil rights, for gay and lesbian rights, um, but they don't usually have the kind of price tag associated um, uh, with them that phasing out fossil fuels does because fossil fuels are the building blocks of, of modern capitalism. So we're talking about, um, you know, if we take the science seriously, we're talking about, um, well, what, they, what are called stranded assets. These are assets that the fossil fuel company has already laid claim to um, in their reserves Somewhere around twenty, uh, around uh, twenty trillion dollars. I mean, it's it's an unfathomable sum. Um, so, you know, what is the precedent for that? And I think that the only precedent that even comes close um, was the abolition of slavery at a time when, um, you know, it was uh, it it was extraordinarily profitable and and central um, uh, to to the global economy at the time. Um, so. You know, I use the example for that reason. It's not, you know, it's 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 a deeply imperfect analogy, uh, but there just aren't many. Um, but the other thing that I think is, a, 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 you know, a great analogy for is is just the fact that it shows how a practice that has been normalized um, 
becomes abnormalized by social movements, by pressure, by a redefinition of what is normal. And that's what social movements do. I mean, that's what the feminist movement does. That's what the civil rights movement does. Something that everybody's doing and it's, you know, ascribed to human nature suddenly becomes not accepted. Not suddenly. It takes, you know, it always takes a, a very, very long time. But that's what I see happening, for instance, with, um, you know, the, the fossil fuel divestment movement where, um, you know, four years ago, it, it, it was just completely unquestioned that you would put your money in, uh, you know, in, in, in fossil fuel stocks if you had money in the stock market. Um, maybe you wouldn't buy weapon stocks, maybe you wouldn't buy tobacco stocks, but there was nothing wrong with buying oil and gas and coal stocks. Um, and, um, and that the, the divestment movement has really um, redefined the second most powerful industry in the world after banking, uh, the oil and gas sector. Um, and uh, uh, as uh, you know, an odious practice because they have five times more carbon in their proven reserves than is compatible with, you know, a safety for our kids. Um, and um, and so I think I think we're well on our way, frankly, uh, to changing that game. But I think it's important for us to to know that history of how, you know how it isn't governments that suddenly say, okay, you know. We're, we're redefining what an emergency is. We're redefining what uh, is acceptable. It's, it's pressure from below that does that. Yes, we called for all those green jobs from investing in infrastructure and uh, green, you know, green jobs. But we also wanted to expand the definition of what a green job is. Um, we... Um, are calling for a wave of new investment in the low-carbon workforce that is already out there. So another one of our demands is that we must expand those sectors that are already low-carbon, caregiving, teaching, social work, arts, public interest media. You know, environmentalists don't usually mention it, but teaching and caring for kids doesn't burn much carbon, nor does caring for the sick. When we care for the, each other, we care for the planet, which is why we call the LEAP Manifesto a manifesto for caring for the planet and each other. So it makes no sense that these are the very sectors that are under relentless attacks by cost-cutting politicians, which is why we felt that it was absolutely crucial to say something else, that in a time of unprecedented private wealth, austerity is a manufactured crisis that is at war with life on Earth. The money we need is out there. We just have to get at it, and we know how to do it. We end fossil fuel sub subsidies. We introduce financial transaction taxes. We increase royalties on fossil fuel extraction. We have higher income taxes on corporations and the wealthy, and a progressive carbon tax, and cuts to military spending. So... Naomi Klein, author of This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, speaking about her book at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. Naomi Klein is the author of two previous books, No Logo, published in the year 2000, and The Shock Doctrine, 2007. Before her public lecture at Mount Allison, Naomi Klein was interviewed by the Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. One thing that I didn't see much about in your book is um, the uh, current war on terrorism. I'm wondering how that fits in to the the uh, crisis of global climate change. Well, I mean, not just the war, so-called war on terrorism, but any, you know, um, uh, 
you know, so many uh, recent wars have been fought over um, over oil and gas and pipelines. I mean, you know, it might not be the only factor or the deciding factor, but, you know, it's pretty reliably a big factor, um, you know, certainly when we're talking about the Middle East. Um, so uh, the quest for fossil fuels, the quest for the very substance that is causing climate change is um, – um, the major destabilizer in our world. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and war itself also burns a huge amount of, of fossil fuel. The, the, you know, the biggest polluter in the world is the U.S. military. Um, and, um, you know, in addition to that, um, climate change itself fuels conflict. So, um, you know, if you look at, you know, Syria, you know, you have a country that has first destabilized by the invasion of Iraq, um, and, and the quest for the substance that is causing climate change. Um, and then Syria experienced, um, the worst drought in its history, uh, a few years ago, which, um, you know, according to John Kerry, was a major catalyst for the outbreak of civil war because, uh, between 1.5 and 2 million people were, became internally displaced within, within Syria. And whenever you have that kind of internal displacement, then you have, um, you know, tensions escalating. Um, so they were kind of caught, uh, Syria is caught in that pincer uh, um, uh, between the impacts of climate change and the quest for the substance causing climate change. So it's, you know, it's, it could have easily been a chapter in the book. Um, there are all kinds of things that should have been a chapter in the book for sure. <laughs> now, I just have two more questions, Naomi. And, um, oh, this one is the personal one. It, it's sometimes hard to know where the personal and the political intersect. Now, for example, I drove five kilometers to get here to interview you today. And, and you've traveled much farther than that to get here for your public lecture tonight. Um, how do we, uh, to what extent can those of us concerned about climate change balance that concern with our continued consumption of fossil fuels? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's a great question. It's one I struggle with and think about um, all the time. Um, you know, when I, I cut my flying to about a tenth of what it had been um, and, um, you know, changed changed the way I was living from, you know, what I was eating to, you know, trying to garden very badly. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and obviously being, you know, very conscious, you know, when I'm, when I'm not traveling, um, you know, biking, transit, all of that, right? Um, but, um, you know, I'm far from perfect and I, and, you know, I'm, I think I, you know, I, I fly way too much now and I'm having a personal crisis about this right now. So I think it is, I think it, it is important. It's important to show people that you can, you know, dramatically reduce your consumption of fossil fuels and still lead a happy and fulfilled life. Because one of the things people are most afraid of is this idea that, you know, if I, you know, if if, if, uh, acting on climate change means, you know, my life is going to become terrible because they're hearing that all the time, um, that all everything that is good comes from fossil fuels. Um, But that said, you know, as you know, as I say in the book, I think that we also have overplayed the importance of individual action at the expense of systemic action. Um, so I, you know, it's, it, it, it's important, but it is not, isn't everything. So I guess the story I tell myself is, you know, if I, I'm, because we are in an economy that is based on fossil fuels currently, um, 
And because I am advocating systemic change, that I'm always going to be in some kind of a contradiction um, between, um, uh, you know, pushing for those systemic changes within a system that is based on the very thing that I'm critiquing. Um, but, you know, if we have to be 100% fossil free in order to call for a transformation of our economy off fossil fuels, then there's going to be like three people who are qualified to do that. So that will be a very, very small, small movement. <laughs> now, final question. How would you say that your book, This Changes Everything, fits in to your other books, uh, The Shock Doctrine and No Logo? How, how, what's the pattern there? Um, I mean, I think it's probably easier for other people to discern patterns, but, um, you know, cer- certainly, um, you know, I, I saw, saw a pretty clear connection with No Logo as I was writing it because No Logo was really about this moment um, in, you know, in, in the late 80s when um, consumption sort of exploded and became this lifestyle. And it was, you know, um, and, 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 and when so much of the public sphere sort of um, contracted and became commercial and, and corporate. Um, and that's what I was tracking when I was writing No Logo. I wasn't aware that one of the impacts of that was this explosion in emissions that I'm tracking and this changes everything, but they're certainly connected. Um, but in terms of the shock direction, I mean, like, to be honest with you, I see it as a straight up sequel. You know, I mean, that book um, ended with Hurricane Katrina. And, um, you know, I always felt that Katrina was a glimpse of the future um, that we're headed towards, uh, where we'll have more and more extreme weather shocks that will then be exploited for further privatization and deregulation. And, you know, I saw that, you know, up close in New Orleans, and I definitely felt like I was, this is, this is where we're all headed if we don't get off that road. So, you know, this changes everything is an attempt to try to figure out how we get off that road, what, what, what veering looks like, um, what we do instead. You've been listening to a public lecture and interview with Naomi Klein, author of This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.